Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates podcast. This is episode 16. We are going to be talking about some more of our favorite dungeon crawlers, specifically a lot of those that are honestly kind of a fantasy epic game, some of that you really can dive into the world, really get lost in it. I, of course, am your captain, Ian, joined by the man who continuously prevents me from achieving inner peace. Matt, how you doing? Uh, man, I'm doing great, dude. Uh, sorry I'm harsh in your buzz, you know. I'm just out here trying to enjoy life on the deck of our ship, the SS Reiner Knizia. Sail on the high seas of board games. You know, it is your laissez-faire attitude towards absolutely everything that drives me nuts. But fortunately, we do have somebody with us that will hopefully take things a little more seriously. We are joined by Harry from Harry Met Board Games. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Harry, we're so glad to uh, have you here uh, when we were planning out an episode on fantasy adventure games. Uh, I know you're a big fan of this genre. You've done several uh, great videos breaking down your favorite fantasy games, awesome fantasy games. And so uh, I thought no better person to help us uh, talk about this genre than Harry. I'm going to try my best, guys. We do have some really exciting stuff before we get to our main topic, of course. But instead of our soapbox, we actually have something fun for you. Matt, what are we going to be doing next? Well, yeah. So instead of me ranting about what gripe I have in board games, I decided that it would be uh, interesting if we take a look at the 2020 Golden Geek Award winners. So the 15th annual Golden Geek Awards were announced March 2nd over on Board Game Geek. And these are, you know, in some ways kind of becoming one of the premier awards for games. Not quite the the Spiel de Jahr in Germany, but these are uh, fan uh, awards uh, picked by the users of Board Game Geeks. And so it's always kind of an interesting look at what the people think are hot, what people have been playing. And so I thought we would maybe just take a look at these in each category and get some reaction from you guys about, you know, what, what we think about it. So we'll just kind of run through them, starting at the top. So the best uh, two-player game for 2020, according to the Golden, uh, t- according to the Board Game Geek users, was Undaunted North Africa with runners-up Unmatched Cobble and Fog and runner-up Imperial Struggle. Harry, you got any experience with those games? I have not played those games, but definitely out of the ones you've mentioned, Undaunted is the one that's most caught my eye. Yes. It's like a World War II deck building style game. So um, I love history theme. Yeah, that one's super fascinating to me. And I am, uh, I I was really pleased to see that there, that the sequel, the North Africa sequel is just as good Mm. potentially as the first. Uh, A really compelling looking two-player strategy game that like you said is deck building it looks really simple to pick up and play the other thing that strikes me about it is this really evocative and interesting art it's like a little cartoony almost like a comic book in a in a good way so i don't know those look fun have no idea what unmatched cobble and fog is i've never played that and then imperial struggle is another uh in in gmt games seemingly endless series of historical uh battle recreations (laughs) this has become a sort of a, a recent uh trend for us in our game group is getting into gmt games we started playing uh twilight struggle and uh, have sort of overcome our fear of war games, and we're getting a little bit more into the GMT game world. So I'm in, I'm sort of intrigued by that one as well. Yeah, that one definitely looks interesting to me as well. Um, and you know, I mean, obviously, like I said, huge fans of Twilight Struggle, and have not played it myself, but definitely, if people think it's worth giving a shot, I'll have to try it as well. Also, I think it's it's one of the few deck building games that has like a historical theme to it, right? Most deck building games have some other type of theme. 
Yeah, no, I, I love that there is an emphasis on history. And like you said, most deck building games kind of are in this, this other universe and it's kind of neat to have something a little more grounded. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. This next category uh, is really fascinating to me. These are three totally different games. Uh, artwork presentation. Winner was on Mars with runners up Lost Ruins of Arnak and then Calico. I, I actually agree with that one pretty strongly. I think uh, the art design on, on Mars is fantastic, but I know uh, Ian's uh, not on board with that one as much. I don't know. Look, I, I just if you told me that a Vitaler Serta game was going to win Best Artwork Presentation, <laughs> I mean... You know, I mean, it, it's a pretty game. I'll grant you that. The me the meeples are fantastic. I love the printed cardboard. But I mean, also, ninety percent of the game board is is cluttered with actions and things that you're doing. It's not one hundred percent intuitive. Things are thrown at you. I I think that the uh, the runners up in this should probably have taken the win on this. I mean, Calico, of course, a gorgeous game. Lost Ruins of Arnak has an amazing art style. I mean, these are games that I think probably deserve the win over On Mars, but. You know, I mean, it, it is a beautiful game, just not what I would have chosen to win. All right, card game. And I'm curious if you've played uh, this winner, Harry, because we haven't played it yet, but it's been a hot game everyone's talking about. The card game of the year was Dune Imperium, followed oh. by uh, Fort and Oceans. Uh, Dune Imperium just doesn't look that great to me. I don't know. I'm sort of surprised that that game has caught on. Well, I, I haven't played it, but it has caught my interest. Uh, deck building and worker placement combined. I don't really know much about the Dune IP, so I'm not invested in that way. I guess I have a slight bias against it because we're real big fans of the classic Dune. And then oh, the okay. Gale and we've played a lot of the Gale Force 9 remake over uh, the last couple of years. And the deck building kind of variation of it just didn't pique my interest as much. And then I, for some reason, I just didn't love the look of the characters being based around like the new movie. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Maybe those are pretty. Uh, I, I'm probably wrong. I think when you're emotionally invested, like you are, you know, sometimes it's uh, tough to be unbiased about it, right? <laughs> yeah, you're you right. Get pretty protective about things for sure, especially yeah. when you do care. Sure, sure, of course. We did play Fort, and that was a game that I actually. I did not connect with that game. Like, I think a lot of people have. This is definitely one of those games that's had its moment this past year. I know people have talked about it a lot, but. I really felt that this game struggled in a lot of cases, actually. One of the biggest things just being that the game, while it looks simple, when you actually start to explain it, there are so many symbols. It does it does something that I think is good, where it starts removing words from the guides and things like that, so you don't have to always, you know, reprint something new for every language. It makes it, you know, more universal. But at the same time, if the icons you use for actions are not very clear, then it can get very difficult to follow along. That's one of the biggest problems I had with Fort, for sure. It is a confusing game at first. You have to learn the visual language of the card. Yeah, because like you said, there's no words on any of the cards. It's just symbols. So you kind of got to learn that. The other thing Fort does that's strange, that throws the deck-building game genre on its head, is you really want to spend uh, all the cards uh, in your hand each turn because anything that you have left over that you don't spend on your turn, uh, your opponent can grab. And that makes it really tense. You can lose a card out of your deck if you don't uh, spend it. So that's pretty wild. A couple other things here I think are interesting. Expansion of the year was Wingspan, the Oceana expansion. I thought that was a strange thing. I thought the Nectar cards really, uh, the Nectar resource actually almost completely transformed that game into something that did not even feel like Wingspan. It did transform the game a lot and i don't know if you had the chance to to play it harry but for me personally i felt like it did make the game easier which may or may not be a good thing 
Yeah, I, I haven't played it yet. I just got my hands on the Europe expansion recently. So, but from the looks of it, it seems like it definitely brings more to the game than the European expansion does. Yeah, the European expansion was definitely very small compared to this one. The Oceania expansion does have new player boards. It mm -hmm. introduces new dice, you know, of course, a whole new resource that you can get, new bird power. It, it, it introduced a lot, and I did enjoy playing with it, but I did feel that overall it definitely made the game easier for like you didn't have to have as tight of a strategy moving forward not that that's a bad thing i think you know for a lot of people that may be easier to play that way i think it did kind of flatten the difficulty curve of the game a little bit i'm going to skip ahead really quick just so we we will go through all of these there's a lot of categories here but we'll look at the light medium and heavy games of the year medium game of the year was lost ruins of our night which has been incredibly popular uh runner up in that category was dune imperium which we talked about and then the heavy game of the year was gloomhaven jaws of the lion uh runner up uh on mars and then viscounts of the west kingdom i'm actually like a little bit I'm, i actually have a slight quibble with describing gloomhaven as a heavy game i'm not sure maybe it's just maybe i've just played so many board games i don't know like what's heavy or light anymore do you feel like gloomhaven is the heavy game of the year compared to something like on mars i just don't know well, I, ha I haven't, I got a confession here, guys. I haven't played Gloomhaven, and I certainly haven't played, <laughs> I know, right? And I certainly haven't played uh, Jaws of a Lion. Maybe it's based on the amount of content the game brings. Maybe that's how they're defining it as heavy. But I have a hard time believing that Gloomhaven is heavier than a Lacerda game. It, it, it just, in, in I, like I said, I have, and again, I haven't played the, the Jaws of a Lion version, but if anything, I think that's a simpler to pick up and play version of gloomhaven at least that's how it's packaged it's kind that's of the a purpose more, of it yeah. that's the purpose of it the retail like version of it and uh when you think about just learning the mechanics of a game like on mars something like that is just orders of magnitude more difficult than uh gloomhaven gloomhaven um yeah i certainly think it would be like a midweight game it's not a beginner game by any stretch of the imagination but once you understand the card drafting kind of how the combat works it's not that difficult a game certainly nothing like trying to figure out the crazy like mechanics of how the shuttle moves and all this stuff and on mars so i think that's an interesting choice but i just think it goes to show you that gloomhaven is incredibly popular right now yeah definitely i mean it's it seems like any category gloomhaven gets nominated for it's gonna win you know it's gonna win exactly so, there's a little bit of gloomhaven bias i think of the fan base right now uh i i'm sort of the impression and we kind of elaborate on it i Gloomhaven might be a little bit overrated. I mean, it's a good game, but is it as great as we've made it out to be? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I think sometimes the size of that box and the amount of content in the game sure. inflates in people's mind that it's maybe better than it is. Is it that good a game? Certainly not a bad game, but is it you know the greatest board game of all time? I think that's a uh, an interesting debate that people. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like with movies. Sometimes people like the idea behind the movie more than the script the plot the acting right so it's it's one of those things the idea of gloomhaven is is perhaps even better than the game itself and again that's coming from a person who has not played gloomhaven but i think that's a fair <laughs> i think that's a fair assessment because when i played uh, well we're getting ahead of ourselves but when we get to the gloomhaven segment in a <laughs> yeah, little we'll bit, i'm that. gonna elaborate <laughs> on my feelings the last thing i want to mention about these golden geek uh, award winners that stood out to me as being very uh very apt for the year uh, that this represents 2020 is that the number one print and play game of the year was uh, Seven Wonders Duel solo version. 
that that just really speaks to what we all went through in 2020. So many people being on lockdown with the rise of solo gaming uh, in 2020, with people not being able to play with friends but still wanting to connect with their hobby. I think it's fascinating that a classic, venerable game like Seven Wonders, uh, people wanted to still be able to play that, and they figured out a way to play it solo with a print and play adaptation, and that's really kind of cool. That to me just speaks to like the innovation of uh, board game fans. Like they're gonna find a way to play their favorite games. <laughs> Yes, it's fantastic. Yes. I think that's I think that's really amazing. I do I do think it is neat. You know, we're talking about Gloomhaven winning a lot of these awards, but I do think it's it's neat to look at how you know even when there have been some very popular games this past year, some that really did stand head and shoulders like Gloomhaven. You did avoid kind of the situation where you had you know when Wingspan came out, where Wingspan won basically every award that <laughs> that it could win, and I mean that's you know. That's due to the fact that these are voted choice awards, but I, I think it does speak to the um, sort of the tweaking of the awards that they did try to prevent that from happening. So, you know, good on them there. But yeah, no, that's some very interesting winners here. I, th- I think it's uh, it's really, it definitely opens up to games that I have not been exposed to, though, which is always a good thing. I guess just the last thing I feel, I feel remiss to say if we don't say this before we close. We were snubbed again for best podcast of the year. You know, one of these days they're going to notice the quality that we're bringing. I think it's just we're flying under the radar here. Soon enough. Soon enough. We are almost there. And especially with the quality of guests we're bringing on now. I mean, (laughs) you know, we have to get there. But we are going to go ahead and move on to one of my favorite segments. We're going to do Bitter Board Gamers. Uh, I'm pumped about this. This is the segment of the podcast where I'm going to go ahead and read some reviews from some very salty gamers on BGG. And we're going to guess... What game is this coming from? Who really missed the the point of this game? Are you guys ready? Yep. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. The first review. If you like just doing arithmetic with friends over and over, then you will have more fun than me. Very shallow gameplay and not enough fun to make up for that. Ugh. Doing arithmetic over and over again with friends? That sounds terrible. <laughs> All right. I have my, uh, my, my go-to uh, first hint, as always. Is this a game I've played? It is a game you've played. It is a game you've played. The I'm pretty sure both of you have played this game, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a, a second. I'm going to give you a second one real quick. Here we go. This is supposed to be a gateway or party game. The problem is people who are looking for a gateway are almost always ready to pass through the superior gates of Ticket to Ride, Seven Wonders, or Base Dominion, and partiers are going to have more fun with silly crap like exploding kittens anyway. <laughs> Ooh. Wait, I know this game. I know it. Do you do you know it? I think I know it. There's a couple of games that are coming to mind that are like mathy and are billed as party games. What, Harry? What is that game where you're? It's like a fireworks show and you're trying to like guess and get them in order. It's a little card game. Oh, Hanabi, Hanabi, Hanabi. That's it. Is it Hanabi? It is not Hanabi. Oh man. Uh, the other one I had in mind was there was a really is that popular game from a couple of years ago, The Mind. Where you're trying to like guess numbers and count them in order. Hmm. Not the mind. All right, I got one more review and then I can give you a hint. We'll play with kids, simple brain exercise, or with an exceptionally fun and receptive group due to the theme. But otherwise, I'd rather sit and talk or stay silent for that matter for 20 minutes required to play this mind-numbing game. <laughs> I would game. rather sit in silence <laughs> for 20 minutes than play this game. That's brutal. It's, it's brutal. I'm officially stumped on this one. I have no idea. All right. So this is potentially one of the tastier games oh, um, that wait exists. Wait a minute. Tastier game. So it's yeah. food, food theme. Are you talking about Sushi Go right now? 
I am talking about Who Sushi Go. Who doesn't like Sushi what? Go? <laughs> okay. Okay, I have several problems. I have several problems with this. Wow. One, that first review completely threw me off because of the oh, overemphasis yeah. on math. There's nobody <laughs> worse at math than me. Uh, and so if that game was as math heavy as this guy, if they were making it out to be, uh, I would hate it. But I like Sushi Go. I guess it's sort of... it's. It's sort yeah, of math in the sense, math. I guess, that if you really wanted to try to like card count and know how many, you know, edamame are in the deck and how many are out, so that means how many are being passed around. I mean, you could certainly like that. That could apply to so many games, though. Yeah, Car- card counting. That's just that's just how that's just how games work. Also, you know, if you can't enjoy a game with a little smiling edamame beam or some like uh, green tea uh, ice cream smiling at you, like you're, I mean, you got to search your own soul. <laughs> that's just not right. Yeah, again, that first review was just bogus. <laughs> Man, yes, they definitely really miss kind of the, the fun part of the game, sadly. Um, but I do have one more game for you guys. All right. Let's do it. Cthulhu-themed Yahtzee. Oh, Elder Sign. Elder Sign. <laughs> right out of the gate, he gets it. Come oh, on. my goodness. Okay. Uh... Okay, we just played this. Uh, I'm glad you did this one because uh, Ian and I just played this for the first time and probably... It's been a couple of years since I played Elder Sign, and I wasn't sure if it would hold up. It was an early favorite game of mine, and we busted it out just this past Saturday, and uh, really good. Still, it's a great game. Uh, still a very solid game. Absolutely. Um, it's one of those ones that it makes me sad. I think Fantasy Flight's kind of abandoned it. You know, it got a good run of uh, expansions there for a while, but there's been no news about it in a long time, and it's sort of off the yeah. radar of fans. But uh, it's not Yahtzee. It's Yahtzee-esque. I've used that to describe it to people before. Sure. But it's much more, obviously, much more thematic. But it's much more tense and much more difficult than Yahtzee. Because you, if you fail in a roll, you have to remove a die from your pool. Which is such yes. a clever mechanic. Because that idea that like it's getting more desperate to try to complete uh, the card. You know, if you've, it, your dice pool is just dwindling down. And when you get down to like just one last die to attempt to satisfy one of the objectives. Oh, that's a great moment in gaming when you're just sweating and then you get it. Oh, amazing. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, uh, the, the role it's the roll and lock mechanism is a lot more tense and exciting than just a simple roll and re-roll of Yahtzee, right? Cause you have to make, you either have to commit a dice to whatever task you're trying to fulfill, or you have to lose a die cause you failed, right? Yeah, no, definitely more than just Yahtzee, the different characters, you know the the, the narrative and text yeah really good game yeah it tells sort of a weird emergent story as you're playing now what's interesting to me when you talk about the yahtzee comparison here is i again caveat haven't played this game we talked about it a couple episodes ago but a fantasy flight just released this x-men uh game that is kind of a variation on elder sign it has oh yes it has the location cards you send your x-men out to Mm -hmm. the location you roll the dice but I watched a, a playthrough of it, and I noticed that they actually simplified the dice rolling. Uh, and it is much more like Yahtzee. It's just a traditional, you just roll and re-roll and try to get it. And uh, it's so much more... Uh, I don't I don't like that. <laughs> no, I didn't like it at all. So I did, ended up not picking the game up. And uh, maybe I'm wrong. If, I, if I've if i miscategorized the game, I'm sure that uh, one of our listeners will uh, let me know. But... Uh, yeah, Elder Sign's great. What are what are some other salty reviews of Elder Sign so I can mock them? Yeah, so I do have one more that I think you guys enjoy. <clears throat> First and only play, 
Roll after roll, never got the icons needed. Fail, 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 fail. World destroyed. That person definitely doesn't get the game. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I mean that just sounds like that's just how Elder Sun. That how, that's how it be sometimes. I mean, obviously, any dice rolling game, there's a lot of luck, but Elder Sign, it gives you just as many opportunities for dice mitigation as your typical mm. dice game. I yeah. mean, between yeah. the items, the weapons, the spells, there's just so many ways. You even have the focus ability, right? You could yeah. sacrifice a die in order to save another die for a future turn. Like, there's so many ways around it. Obviously, you could still lose, yeah. but if a person did that bad just right off the bat, then. That's on them. <laughs> this is one of those interesting things about gaming that I think is also like when you get people who maybe are new to the to the hobby coming in is like the idea of being willing to lose, especially lose a cooperative yeah. game, is oftentimes a hard hill for people to climb. Yeah. Like you sit people down from pandemic and sometimes you got to be like, look, here's the deal. We're going to have fun playing, but we could lose and that's okay and we're mm -hmm. still going to have fun. But that is kind of that's tough for some people to get past, actually. Or even the idea of being bad at a game and yet acknowledging that the game is good. That's a great point. You know, you don't, it's not about being successful every time you play. You have to kind of just roll with the punches when it comes to cooperative games. Because you are dealing with randomness, you're dealing with variables. And there are some gamers that just, when they come to the table, they want a more controlled experience. They want a, a game that they can master and get good at. In fact, one of the reasons that we haven't played Elder Sign as a while is there's a we got a buddy in our group who just doesn't like to lose. And so there are some co-op games that, like, after a truly epic failure, have gone on the shelf and just disappeared to the library. So, you know, but I'm okay with it because I'm a much more laissez-faire type gamer. I'm just like, I want to have the experience if Cthulhu devours the world in the end. Hey, sometimes sometimes, sometimes Cthulhu wins, and we all just have to, uh, you know, That's okay. we have to deal with it. <laughs> It is always sad. It's fun to read them, but it is always sad to know that there are people who just missed out on these really exciting games. But we are going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion now. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back talking about some fantastic fantasy epic games. All right, so welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic today, which is a deep dive into fantasy adventure board games. These are big games that give you big adventures on the tabletop, and we're really proud to have a special guest here with us today for this topic, which is uh, Harry, who you probably know uh, from social media. You've seen him on his uh, very popular YouTube channel. Uh, when Harry met board games and also on a, uh, also a very popular Instagram account. Harry, thanks so much for joining us. Really glad to have you here. Thank you guys for having me. Before we kind of dive into the topic a little bit, I just wanted you to uh, take a minute and introduce uh, yourself to some of the listeners who uh, maybe don't know you or haven't seen you. Tell us a little bit about uh, kind of your background in games and uh, what you do uh, on your social channels. All right. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to point out the fact that my name really is Harry. I get that question asked all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and when I answer it, people are like, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. You know, but... um. I had one person save. If that weren't my real name, it'd be stupid. But <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, so yeah, I have it. Like you mentioned, I'm on YouTube. I do top ten lists, board game reviews, board game playthroughs, some unboxings, things like that. I also every once in a while I try to introduce um, a new series, something that's a little bit more focused on a particular topic and things like that. Because I just like to talk, which is why when you <laughs> invited me to be a guest on your podcast, I absolutely had to say yes. 
But um, I'm also on Instagram and try to be active there as well. Uh, just very happy to be part of the community. I do have to say it's perhaps my bias. I feel like the Instagram kind of like sector of this hobby is perhaps like the nicest demographic from within the hobby. I mean, you have all these little pockets of communities within the larger board game community. You got your board game geek, you know, bitter board game <laughs> reviewers there. And uh, but Instagram, you know, I just find that community to be very friendly, very um, happy, positive, uh, willing to, to help. So yeah, I've been in the hobby for about five years now. And I say five years because I, I, as many of us, I grew up playing board games, love playing games all of my life. But I kind of traced my beginnings or my origins to when I actually got serious, uh, created like a board game geek account, started buying, you know, more designer games, hobby games, not just your typical mass market games. And, uh, you know, kind of from the get-go, I feel like very early on in my experience in the hobby i knew that i wanted to give back to the hobby and i wanted to share my love of games because that's just the kind of person i am when i love something i just want everybody to love it with me <laughs> um so yeah and that's kind of like where the idea came and for some time even before i launched my channel my instagram page i had been talking about it to those close to me and i finally said hey you know you got to start somewhere and started and launched it and I haven't looked back since and it's been an amazing ride it's been a year and four months now a year and four months oh wow i didn't realize it had been uh, that short you've had some tremendous uh success in a short amount of time uh so congratulations on that thank you and uh very prolific uh I'd recommend you check out harry's channels he's definitely he's done a lot of videos and a lot of really interesting breakdowns on a wide ranging style of games one of the main reasons that i thought about you uh as a guest on this episode is one of the videos that you did that caught my eye was a breakdown of the Roombound series which, uh, as anyone who listens to this show knows, is kind of a running gag. It's my favorite game. I find a way to mention it. Even on shows that have nothing, somehow have nothing to do with Roombound, uh, I can find a way to compare it. And uh, to find another fan out there who not just had played the third edition, but all the games, was uh, that was really cool for me to see. But anyway, let's uh, we'll get into it. So this is sort of a sequel episode for us. A few months back, we did an episode on dungeon crawls, and we did a deep dive into that kind of niche genre and where it came from and its evolution out of uh, tabletop role-playing games and kind of the long history of games about heroes crawling through the darkness and gave some recommendations of games to play in that space. But the thing is that the fantasy genre is much much bigger than that and there uh is a long tradition as well of games that have really tried to replicate the rpg in a box they've tried to take the dungeons and dragon experience and make it accessible to folks that maybe don't have a tabletop role-playing group or don't want to have a, a dungeon master type dynamic they just want to play a game and so there's been some interesting attempts to do this really early on and i think it would be i wanted to point out a couple of early games in this now these are not necessarily games that we've played but they're i recommend you look them up because there's some a fascinating uh walk through uh, board game history magic realm in 1979 uh, was really one of the first attempts to try to take Dungeons and Dragons or the tabletop ex role-playing experience and turn it into a game. And this game has, I've been slightly obsessed with this game for a few weeks. Uh, really, it's been on my, I've been aware of it for a while, but I've been reading up on it. And this is now on my bucket list of things to play. It is uh, often considered one of the most complicated, if not the most complicated board games of all time. It plays up to 16 players, which is one of the most insane player counts I've ever heard of for a board game. And it can take four hours to 
almost an entire day to play, depending on how many people you are. And it is basically simulating the life of a hero in a fantasy world in an incredibly detailed and complex way. Uh, the idea of a game that heavy and that complicated really fascinates me. So this was an early Avalon Hill game that's been out of print for a couple of decades, but there are some very elaborate uh, print-and-play uh, versions of it out there if you are interested. But um, from Magic Realm, you get then into Talisman in 1983, uh, a game that I think more modern gamers are probably more familiar with because it's gone on to four different editions. One uh, sort of popularly published by Fantasy Flight Games up until a few years ago when they lost the Games Workshop license. But again, Talisman is that same thing, creating a big quest, a big kind of all-day uh, tabletop experience of heroes trying to get the crown of command and become the most powerful hero in the world. The thing about Talisman and the reason that I think it probably hasn't aged well and kind of has a bad reputation is that it's a role to move. You know, it's the classic uh, track around a board that early board games had. And so this game, despite the fact that it looks very thematic and fun, and uh, I've oftentimes been tempted to play it, I just can't see myself playing a five-hour roll and move game that just sounds same here it just sounds brutal you know even though yeah. it looks great and one of these days i think i'm going to add it to my collection just to have it and then from talisman you get to kind of the granddaddy of fantasy uh adventure games which is uh of modern ones anyway which is uh hero quest the great sort of milton bradley uh kids from the 80s who uh, saw these commercials like your mind was blown you've never seen anything like it all these plastic miniatures all this thematic stuff uh, so much of what's going on in uh, modern board gaming actually uh, has its roots with uh, this game, which is actually getting a, a revival now recently and a reprint coming out finally after a long, long time. So for many years, people have been trying to kind of perfect uh, this genre, the RPG type experience, but in a box. Harry, what do you, is this a, a style of game that you enjoy? What's your experience with games like this? Um, yeah, absolutely. This is definitely a style uh, of game. I mean, I consider myself an omni gamer, but I do find that there's something about this style of game that appeals to the solo gamer in me. Mm. It's just so immersive that I forget when I'm playing by myself that I am by myself. Yeah. So, and I really get into that role playing kind of zone that while I do enjoy a good Euro with a good, um, you know, AI kind of opponent with a solo mode. There's just something about these style of games in particular for playing solo. I, I like playing it with other people around, but there's just something about playing these games solo that really, really appeals to me. That's really interesting that you observed that because I feel the same way. I mean, there's a couple of games in this genre that I own that I do really enjoy playing solo because you can slow down and do some things that you wouldn't necessarily do with you're trying to be respectful of other people's time, like really kind of get into the flavor text on the cards, yes. kind of take your time on the turn. And you can kind of let a story appear uh, in your mind, yeah. uh, which is a fun way to approach the game. Sometimes when you're playing with other people, you know, you kind of, you want to keep the game moving. You're not going to sit there and uh, kind of indulge mm -hmm. in it. So these are really nice. And uh, a few episodes back, uh, we had our friend, uh, Lily from uh, Play It Solo on, and she talked about how great Mage Knight was as a solo experience for that exact same sort of reason. You kind of create this epic uh, story as you play. It is interesting to see these games, like obviously just the transition of these games from these massive board games like Magic Realm that take 
ridiculous amounts of time and in true avalon hill fashion they decided to up the player count to ridiculous amounts i mean that's a a classic dune thing is just having nine people at a table when are you ever going to find 16 people to play a, a board game for five hours i mean it's hard enough to get four. i don't know but i just want to put the call it to the world if there's somebody out there that wants to bring me into a 16 player game of magic realm i'll do it. i just want to have that experience one time i want to sit around the table for 12 hours with a bunch of nerds and pretend to be a dwarf wizard it's fomo it's fomo it's, yeah. <laughs> I do think it's really cool that you do have these like these massive experiences and that we are able to give people the option to play these solo and provide these realms. I mean, moving back to the, you know, the uh, Golden Geek Awards, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion won runner up for uh, best solo game, which, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's winning a lot of awards, but only runner up, huh? <laughs> only only runner up. Obviously, somebody forgot to, to stack the votes there. But no, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously people not only love that game, but also really enjoyed the plan- chance to play it solo. Of course, this past year, solo games having kind of their moment in the spotlight. But just in general, I mean, this spawning from D&D, this very cooperative, you have to do with friends, things like that. But people want that experience and really want that in solo, even in a board game. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people around the industry are getting with the times. I mean, you've got designers like Bruno Cathala, Stefan Fell, people who, who were never known for having like solo variants and they're starting to get with it. And lots of their games now, they're factoring that in and they're including some kind of solo play for people. So, well, we wanted to give you, uh, so that's kind of a quick breakdown of, like, the idea of the fantasy adventure game and and what it kind of represents. So, we wanted to give you guys some recommendations. What are some good games in this space? If you want to have an epic adventure, if you want to have a Dungeons & Dragons-like experience uh, solo or with friends, what are some good games? First up, Harry, you had a really, uh, what I thought was a great recommendation, and it's one that I haven't played, but I have seen and I've been very intrigued by. Tell us a little bit about Thunderstone Quest. All right. Well, Thunderstone Quest is uh, one of my favorite games, so I definitely have lots of bias there. Take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I think that, first of all, Thunderstone Quest is the only pure deck builder that even attempts to like bring this fantasy-themed dungeon crawl experience to life. I mean, lots of um, deck building games have a fantasy theme to them. But they're not necessarily dungeon crawls, right? In in Thunderstone Quest, you're actually exploring a physical dungeon. It comes with little miniatures. You're moving through the rooms. You're fighting the different um, monsters there with from different races and different levels. And while you're at it, you're building your deck, and your deck consists of different characters. And one of the things I like about Thunderstone Quest, and it's such a simple thing, but it means a lot to me, is that the characters actually have names. They're not just a cleric or a, a rogue. They actually have a name, right? So there's no backstory or anything like that, but there's a name. And as you build in your deck, you level up these characters. So they start as level one characters. Then you eventually level them up with to level two, level three. And they become more improved versions of themselves. But those, those um, lower level characters, they don't stay in your deck. You actually remove them from your deck altogether. So they're replaced every time you level up these characters. So I just find it to be really, really cool. Just the variety, the content that comes with the game. There's so many expansions at this point. I think there's like six or seven of them. I'm not sure they're all available at retail, but just a really, really good game. I'm a big fan of the deck building genre. And just to see this style of game, this um, dungeon crawl style of game to be implemented with the deck building mechanism for me is such a pleasure. I, I know this is the third edition of the game as well, so I believe the first two editions weren't quite 
a dungeon crawl. You know, they were kind of like working their way from edition to edition, working their way up. But by the time the third edition came out, I just feel like it's it's a dungeon crawl with a deck building uh, mechanism at, at its core. I love the idea to put the deck building kind of concept into it. And really, not, not, not just adding it on top, but really making that the core yes. idea. Because I think that stuff, you don't see that a lot within Dungeon Crawl. Something that I like a lot about this game, you know, is just looking at it and its table presence is, its table presence is fantastic. That's one of the things you get with a lot of deck builders is how does it, you know, present the cards to you? How does that information come across? And with a lot of them, it's just laid out in front of you. One of the biggest issues that I have with the game Tyrants of the Underdark, which of course not a dungeon crawl, but is a deck builder as well as an area control, does not do a good job of sort of displaying the cards. Too much attention is taken away from them. And so within Thunderstone Quest itself, you have... The cards are not just out there. They are in specific areas. Yes. There's artwork surrounding them. It is absolutely gorgeous in the way it is presented. It also makes it feel more like a dungeon crawl as well, which I think is fantastic. Definitely. It's really interesting to me, the thought of a deck-building dungeon crawl, because when you think of a dungeon crawler, and a lot of times when you think of fantasy adventure-type games in general, you just immediately think of dice. Chunking dice, <laughs> chunking big handfuls of dice feels sort of integral to the genre. And I got to admit, I do mm -hmm. have a bit of a bias toward dice. Sometimes even a game like Massive Darkness, where you're just getting these handfuls of dice and just chucking them down on the table, that can be really satisfying. But it is neat to see somebody implementing the basic mechanics of exploring combat uh, just using cards. And so do you feel like it, do you get that dungeon crawl feel, even though it's a card-driven game and you don't have like, the traditional dungeon tiles and all these like elaborate components well i do i do get that experience and you do have dungeon tiles you have a section of the board oh, okay. which consists of seven different dungeon tiles and each and and, it, and the base game comes with i don't know 12 different rooms that you can use to build your dungeon oh, okay so it does that and, and that's just the base game again as you add expansions it adds additional rooms and obviously characters and monsters and all that stuff so I do personally get the feel and you got to kind of like traverse that dungeon and you can't just move from room to room because some rooms have particular conditions or things that are triggered when you enter, when you pass through and things like that. And same thing with the monsters. If you pass through a monster and decide to avoid the monster, perhaps you might have to suffer some kind of consequence. So I do get the experience. You also have to make your decision at the beginning of the turn to either go to the dungeon or go to the village. And when you go to the village, you're basically doing different things to enhance your characters. You're either going to the shop and getting weapons. And what's really interesting is the weapons are not just cards that you can play whenever you want from your deck. You need to have heroes who wield these weapons and their, and their skill levels need to be high enough to carry specific weapons. So I, I do get the dungeon crawl feel. I do get that experience of leveling up my characters. And one thing in particular for me, when it comes to these style of games, I love games that have what I refer to as in-game leveling up. It's great when you can, you know, tie in a series of games into a larger campaign and level up your characters from game to game. But when you could actually see that character progression within the context or the confines of just one game session, I love it. That's awesome. Does it play out over a campaign or is it a series of like one-off scenarios that you play? Uh, it's basically one-off scenarios, but the there's an additional rulebook, a quest book, where you can kind of tie them in very loosely. So if you're looking for campaign play, uh, it's probably not the way to go. But again, scenario to scenario is just really enjoyable. There's actually an argument to be made that I think there's probably a lot of games are going to the campaign model. And sometimes you don't want to play 
the same game for like 15 weeks to work your way through this campaign. There's actually room, I think, for some options like Thunderstorm that's like you can have a great complete adventure, complete scenario in one session and then, yeah. you know, come back to it later on. So that's Thunderstorm Quest. That's like a really great option, one that mixes up the formula in some interesting ways. Next up, I thought we would talk about kind of the, uh, in some ways, the uh, elephant in the room when you're talking about fantasy adventure games. The current uh, number one game of all time on uh, Board Game Geek, and that is Gloomhaven. Harry revealed earlier in the episode that he's not played Gloomhaven, and we're not going to hang that over his head and make him feel ashamed. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, that's okay. I think, uh, you know, as we kind of alluded to in some of the opening banter, I think there's a there's really probably an argument to be made that Gloomhaven could be a bit overrated, but it does do one thing that I think is noteworthy for this discussion. It's almost the closest thing to really creating a Dungeons and Dragons in a box. If you're not familiar with Gloomhaven, which if you're listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with Gloomhaven, I don't know how that is. But if you're not familiar with Gloomhaven, it is a long-form uh, legacy-style uh, campaign journey in which you uh, can play either solo or with a group of friends, play adventurers who are operating out of the city of Gloomhaven taking on jobs that take you into dungeons and caverns and all sorts of locales, dealing with monsters and baddies, and along the way, evolving and unlocking the Gloomhaven world in a really interesting way. It's got a large map that is entirely unpopulated uh, with locations when the game starts, and you slowly hear about rumors and get quests at locations and add the stickers down that slowly begin to populate your uh, unique version of uh, Gloomhaven. There's a branching narrative and story that can happen depending on the choices that you can make. And then on top of that is an interesting mechanic that that uh, I think uh, that I'd never seen before uh, Gloomhaven it, uh, that may have been out there before is this idea that your character actually reaches an endpoint and then retires. Uh, so you get a secret objective uh, or a personal objective at the start of the game that's unique to your character. And when you complete a certain number of milestones, you retire. That character's done and you'll unlock a new one. And in classic legacy game fashion, uh, the character's hidden away in a little tuck box inside the, this, the labyrinthian uh, Gloomhaven box. And you'll unlock it and you'll see a totally new character, a totally new character class you didn't even know existed. The final thing that I think is really important to know about Gloomhaven is that a little bit like Thunderstone Quest that Harry was talking about, it tosses the uh, formula of what you think of for a dungeon crawl in a fantasy game, uh, it tosses it on its head. Again, no dice. Uh, really no randomness. It uh, borders on becoming a Euro. Uh, playing, a, playing a game of a Gloomhaven is, a, is about hand management and making smart use of a hand of cards. Before you set out on the mission, you're going to pick the selection of powers that you want to take with you in your hand, and you're going to spend those cards on your turn to uh, either move or take different attack or other actions to heal. The deal is that uh, some of these cards will refresh and come back into your hand, and some of them will exhaust entirely. So your hand of cards is going to start to dwindle down, which does a really remarkable job of simulating that you're getting fatigued and you're getting sort of at the end of your rope over the course of the mission as you burn through. And then there's all these really complicated choices you have to make because you could uh, drop a really powerful spell or attack early that could get you out of a jam, but then it's gone. And, uh, and also, these cards have multiple usage. It may have an attack on it, but that card may also, as its bottom action, be a movement. And so burning it may also reduce the number of times you can move or something. So it's a very thinky, very mathy game in its own sort of way. 
but it definitely does a good job of uh, scaling up. And that's why, one of the reasons why we didn't talk about Gloomhaven in our dungeon crawl episode. As I said, it's not actually a dungeon crawl. It's bigger in scope than that. It's a true fantasy adventure that tells the story of a world, tells the story of a city. It's a pretty good game. But I have sort of like qualms with it. Ian, I know we played, uh, we got pretty deep into a long campaign of, of, of uh, Gloomhaven sort of early in our playing games together. What are your recollections of it and your feelings about it? Yeah, so Gloomhaven is definitely an interesting beast when you are talking about this space for sure. Because like you said, it takes a lot of these you know epic scale ideas and really just blows them even bigger. It just become it's a huge game. And I mean, one of the reasons I think people love it so much is just because, you know, it is this it is very story driven. There's a lot of storylines you can follow. The world is incredibly wide open. You can go places, you can explore these new areas, you can pick up these quest lines. And they did a really good job of wrapping these in and giving you the option to play with these storylines. And while you often do have characters kind of showing up and leaving and you know, if you are attached to a certain character and maybe you just really like that play and it can feel bad to have that gone, if you do just like seeing the overall sort of scope of this large world influenced by your actions and seeing these things change, it really is kind of the, the go-to in that way. As well as I think a lot, like as much as we love dice and as much as we love, you know, rolling, getting kind of that randomness to it, there are some people who don't like that as much. And if you want a tactical hand management, like combat sort of game, this is amazing. I mean, it is definitely different, you know, with the idea of, like you said, the cards that have abilities that sometimes will disappear. You have to balance your powerful abilities with your weaker abilities. There is an aspect of like a deck building where as you level up, you get new cards and you have to decide what cards you want. Do you get rid of some of your weaker ones? Do you want to have too many powerful cards that will disappear fast? There is a lot of kind of give and take on this. And uh, if it, it, it's incredibly tactical. You can really kind of, you know, think your way through things. And there's not going to be any luck as, you know, when it comes down to the end and you're like, oh, man, I need one roll to, to beat the boss. Well, that's not really how it works in this game, which, you know, sometimes leads to big moments. But especially I, I think and I think that's good in a game like Gloomhaven, where it is a larger experience and you're going to be doing this over and over and over again. Every now and then you are going to fail that dice roll. And if you're failing that dice roll multiple times during the course of this, you know, large you know, scale story that you're doing, maybe that's not going to feel as good as when you sometimes pull this game out to play for a one-off. So I think there's a lot of reasons this game is definitely amazing. I understand, you know, some of the, the qualms with some people, maybe it is overhyped, but I think there's some really good reasons that people love this game. So there are two, I was reflecting on playing Gloomhaven, and I remember uh, my feelings about it were that it started out really strong. And I loved it for about the first maybe five weeks five sessions that we played it. Like I really was so invested in it. It was super fun. Not like anything I'd ever played. And then I had a change where it started to like, I didn't like it. And I think there's two things about it that threw me off. One is that my hot take on it is that this game doesn't do a good job of like making your character feel more powerful. Actually, as you level up, you get overwhelmed because you unlock cards that you can then add to your hand. So like, I remember I was playing a rogue and like you start out with a bow, but then you get like, all these other cool like cards that represent new skills and new abilities that you have. Now I can throw like three knives or I have like all these poison attacks and I can do this and I can do that. But after, but after a while creating your loadout that you're going to take into the mission, cause you, cause you're not going to take all these cards with you that you've unlocked. You're going to still pick a selection of them to form your kind of like your hand for the session. It started to get overwhelming. And you can actually make mistakes and pick cards that sound cool and don't synergize well together and have a really bad run. 
So it's sort of paradoxical. Like I've leveled up, I've got more options, but I'm actually doing worse because it's more complicated to think about how they interplay together. It's not as simple as just like, I've got a new attack now and it's better, or I'm doing more damage. You're creating more options as you level up. And so you have to, th it's, you have to think a lot more. The other thing about the card play is that it is it, it can be frustrating to feel yourself getting worn down over the course of the fight because you're spending these cards and you're exhausting them. And so every game of Gloomhaven ends with like you're back against the wall and you've got like one card left. And that tension is fun for a few sessions. But like I said, after four or five, I just got really tired of feeling like, oh my gosh, are we ever going to get out of here alive? And the last thing that threw me off about Gloomhaven is the retire your character mechanic. As unique as that was, the problem is that uh, and I don't want to spoil a legacy game, but it's you, you don't know exactly what character you're going to get next. So you might pick a character that you really identify with and you kind of enjoy. Like I was playing a rogue. I like to play rogues. When my character retired, the character that I unlocked was just... I don't, I don't like I said, I don't want to spoil it because it's a hidden character, but it's a weird archetype of like a magic user that I just did not. Now suddenly it was a chore to play and it totally threw it off. So that was weird. So, you know, Gloomhaven is very good at a lot of things, but it has, I think it has some shortcomings. I sometimes think it's the size of how big that box is that has people's imagination kind of enchanted. Harry, I know you haven't played it, but do you have any feelings about, thoughts about Gloomhaven? Have you intentionally avoided it, or has it just not come your way to have a chance to play it? Uh, no, I haven't intentionally avoided it. I mean, I just, I'm not as prone to, like, the trends around the hobby as other people are. I mean, I, I follow them, I know them, but I don't feel that peer pressure, you know, to necessarily play what everybody else is playing. I am intrigued. I am. I actually own a copy uh, last year uh, for... For Father's Day, my sister bought me a copy of Gloomhaven because I probably was never going to buy that massive game on my, my own. But um, I'm intrigued. But I guess some of the things, you know, the fact that this game is so vast and broad in scope actually makes me wonder, like, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person I, I look for closure in games, right? Yes. And it's hard to find that closure in a game that's that vast. It seems like it seems like part of your qualm is, is kind of like that feeling too. Like you're not getting cl closure or resolution. Uh, I'm sure the process is very enjoyable, but again, maybe doing the same thing, even though the process is enjoyable, can get boring or, or old. This is definitely one of those things that I think there is this sort of lack of representation in some ways. You called yourself an omni-gamer, you know, and I think, you know, we definitely would kind of agree with that. You know, we like to play a lot of games. We almost never play the same game twice in a row if we can help it, you know, unless we really want to kind of bear through you know a, a legacy game like this and a lot of people do really enjoy just picking up a game like this and then that's what they play for the next year that is their yes game. you know maybe they don't get together as often or maybe they just really like to learn this one game and the process of just finding another one shelling out the money for that it can be a lot so the ability to if you do play gloomhaven and you don't play it often i can see that just being kind of a frustrating experience sure. because yeah you don't get the same progression the powering up of your character happens way less often than it does in a lot of these other games it happens you know occasionally after the combat so you're at the same power level there's not a lot of progression that happens instantly and so you really do have to invest a significant amount of time in this game i think that's a great observation i think if you are a game group or a gamer that is looking for like a you're not going to play a lot of games in a year. You want one game that you're going to dig into deep, or you want this to be like your group's game. You get a Gloomhaven group going. This could be perfect. I mean, it could be. It could give you enough content to last ages. But if you like to ping pong around, play a lot of different games, uh, this is it's difficult. You're not going to get the closures too much. 
really, if you want more of that one-off thing, I think Thunderstone Quest might be a better choice. You still get some fun card play, and you're going to resolve the scenario that night. So that may be something to think about. So that's Gloomhaven. Truly, uh, in some ways, the closest to, to somebody actually cramming Dungeons & Dragons in a box, which is uh, quite an achievement for all its potential flaws. Next up is a game that I personally have not played, but I've been fascinated with for a while because I like the total idea of it, and that is One Deck Dungeon, a solo game full of a whole bunch of brightly colored dice. Harry, tell us about One Deck Dungeon. All right, well, first of all, you can play this game with two players. The box does accommodate two players, the base game. I forgot about that. And I believe that if you get two copies, I think you could play up to four players. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. But this game definitely feels like it was designed primarily with solo play in mind and that the two-player variant was more of an afterthought. But yeah, this is a really cool game. I chose this game because it's like my representation of not only a small box dungeon crawl experience, but also a quick one, right? This is like a 30 to 45 minute experience. It's not one of these long drawn out affairs because even thunderstone quest it's it's on the longer end of the spectrum as far as the deck building genre is concerned it's not it's not a quick deck builder but one deck dungeon you could play this game in 30 40 minutes tops and mechanically speaking this game is it's very much euro if you kind of strip the theme you have you kind of have dice placement taking place the conflict resolution system is kind of like dice placement you're rolling dice And you have these different color-coded dice, and the colors correspond with the different stats or the attributes of whatever your character is. But you're trying to, like, place them onto boxes of the particular encounter that you're having at that moment. And that encounter might be a monster, it might be a trap, it might be a puzzle, whatever it is. And you're trying to place these, and the different squares on the cards have particular uh, thresholds, numerical thresholds that need to be met. So you place the dice, and you can add more than one dice as long as you meet these thresholds. And for every box you're unable to uncover, it doesn't necessarily mean that you failed that encounter or you failed to defeat that monster, but each of the boxes has a consequence. Maybe it's the loss of health to your character, or perhaps it's the flipping a few cards from the deck, which kind of serves as the timer of the game. So you're trying to fill out as many of these boxes as possible, but sometimes the dice rolling does not work out that way. And what's really cool is every time you successfully pass an encounter or defeat a monster, you kind of have this multi-purpose card thing going on. Because the cards, now you gain them for yourself as a player, and you can do one of four things of it. You could actually add it to your character as experience points, so that eventually you could level them up, and you want to level up your characters because the higher they are, the more weapons they can wield, the more skills they can have. So you could choose to use it as experience points, or you could choose to use it as a skill, a particular once a turn skill that you can activate every turn, or you can use it as an item, a weapon that your character is wielding that will enhance one of their stats, either their agility or their strength or their magic or their health. And finally, the last thing you could do is you can take it as a potion. Some of these cards give you a spell that comes with a little potion cube and the potion cube is kind of like a currency you use to activate your spells so it's really really cool because the moment you defeat that encounter you have to make that decision how do i want to use this card where is my character best uh benefited from this do i need the experience points do i need a couple more uh items to boost up my attributes or my stats so i find it to be a really really cool uh puzzle you have the exploration experience because you always have four 
uh, cards that represent your dungeon and they're face down and you've got to pick which one to reveal because if you reveal the wrong one and you're not ready for it, you're going you're gonna to have to retreat. And if you retreat, there's always a consequence as far as the timer is concerned. Really cool. Every time you run through the deck, you, you progress through the dungeon, you go to the next level of the dungeon. And this adds further challenges. And yeah, just really neat game. Really neat game. Ah, it looks great. I mean, this has been on my radar for a while because it is, again, it's sort of a clever reinvention of what you think a dungeon crawl is. It's using uh, more simple components, just some cards and some dice to kind of represent that thing of exploration. Sometimes dungeon crawls or fantasy games can be uh, big clunky games, a lot of setup, a lot of components. It's nice to have the idea of a dungeon crawl in a relatively small box that you could just pull out and play without any real setup. I love the idea too that it's short. That's something that this this particular genre uh, needs more of. And you could take it on the go. You could take it on the go. It's such a small uh, box, you know. That's perfect. Yeah, portable, great for trips. Is this a game that you might recommend for uh, like a sort of a gateway into like fantasy games because it's uh, a little more abstracted and sort of a dice puzzle? Like if somebody hasn't played a lot, or is it still fairly complex for maybe like a new gamer? I'd say it's not quite gateway. I'd say you either have to have either experience with board games, with modern day hobby games, or at least have some kind of role playing background. I feel like if you're a novice in both areas, it's probably gonna be too much. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So maybe it's even though it's a small box game, it's not it's not simple. It's not dumbed down. It's still giving you a lot of like complex choices, it sounds like. Yeah. One thing I do love, you know, it, about this game is something that I've that type of game that I've been enjoying a lot more though is this roguelike type game where it's different every time you go in. You know, there is this randomness of the draw. You know, what comes up? How do you respond to it? It's not say, okay, I'm gonna do this module. I'm gonna play the dragon module of Runebound. You know, or I'm gonna do you know this here. You know, it's 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 random. There's approaches to it, and you can get better at it. You can see yourself getting better with the skill of responding to things, understanding what sort of things you can expect from the game and how to respond to those but you do still have to sort of rely on your quick thinking to get you out of there it's one of the reasons why i'm super excited about the upcoming slay the spire board game adaption because that's another it's very similar to this where you know you progress through these characters it's going to be a deck building experience it's going to be a dungeon crawl it's going to be random every time and I, I really love that. I think, and like you said, it's a small thing you can bring where you want. That's definitely an underrated kind of idea in this space, I think, because you want to get that fun experience. You want to delve, become more powerful. But being able to do that in the small box is amazing. I love that. Yeah, and, and your character, you really do progress your character so much through the course of the game. Your character is going to be so much more powerful and effective by the end of the game than when it started out. And one thing I do want to point out is the fact that I appreciate the the gender inclusivity of this game because all of the characters are actually female characters. They don't have names, but they're all female characters. They're depicted on the cards as females. And I think that's really cool to to reach out to, because, you know, kind of these Dungeon Crawler games, the stereotype is that these are guy games, right? And I know my wife wouldn't be caught dead playing any of these games, but there are lots of girls and women out there who enjoy this genre as well. Absolutely. I, I was actually just about to make that exact point, and I'm so glad you brought it up because not too many episodes back, we had an interesting discussion about there was a bit of a controversy about the depiction of the characters on the cover of Tiny Epic Dungeons, Gambling Games game, and like, you know, the kind of stereotypical, you know, revealing armor and clothes and some of the female characters and how they were presenting themselves. 
And so this game, not only does it have female characters with uh, also with uh, racial diversity to how to how they're depicted, but also wearing like practical, like real armor and clothes. So uh, good on the developers here for One Deck Dungeon for just making some smart choices to kind of try to modernize depictions and in, uh, in this genre that isn't always uh, super progressive. Uh, that is one of the yes. downsides to <laughs> fantasy games is that they're not always on the bleeding edge of uh, inclusivity and progression. So mm-hmm. this is uh this is a really cool one. This is a very intriguing one to me. I I was uh not expecting to come away from this conversation kind of wanting to buy one deck dungeon. And it's so economical. I mean, you could get a copy for like 16, 17 bucks. Great. Yeah, if you're looking to get a uh an, an epic adventure onto the table for uh low cost, that's it's hard to beat that. All right, so that's one deck dungeon. So we'll we'll switch gears and we'll kind of close out this with with a game that uh, I'll go ahead and put the uh, the spoiler at the top here. Probably no surprise since it's well established to be my favorite game. I think that that this game is really the perfect distillation of what I think of when I say fantasy adventure board game. A game that tells an epic fantasy adventure in a single session. A game with gorgeous art. Fun, compelling gameplay, the right mix of choices and randomness and tension, and that is Runebound. And so specifically for me, it's Runebound 3rd Edition, but this is an interesting game that had that was around for a long time. You know, to get to three editions over the course of uh, more than a decade of publishing is quite an achievement, and Fantasy Flight did uh, a really good job with the series for a long time. Uh, what is Runebound? Runebound uh, is a game of high adventure. Uh, but it's also a race against the clock. In each game, you pick a scenario where there's a big bad who has come to destroy the land. In the base box, you get two in the third edition. You get a, a dragon and then a kind of an undead lich king who's trying to destroy things. You uh, are basically trying to level up and get ready for the final showdown. You have a certain amount of time because at the end of uh, the rounds that all the heroes make, a, a turn tracker is going to slowly tick down, triggering story events and other things along the way as it moves down. And at a point, uh, the the villain, either the dragon or the undead guy, is going to appear. And then if they are uh, undefeated, by the time the tracker runs out, uh, everybody loses. So it's a race against time to get your character ready to do to, to for this final showdown. To do that, you're going to move around the board, engaging in a variety of encounters. There are uh, events that happen on the road, uh, encounters with people that you can resolve that sometimes give you a bonus or a hard choice. There are quests where you pick up a, a rumor or a hint of something, have to move to another location of the board and explore and resolve it. And then there's combat against a wide array of enemies. And the combat plays out in a really interesting way that we can kind of get into in more detail in a minute, but you use a totally unique mechanic in the third edition that we've not seen really in any other game, which is you toss out a handful of a pog-like disc and then almost play this like mini game where you resolve uh, combat in a really interesting way. But it is a uh, really compelling game to me every time I play it. I think it probably has some flaws. I think there's an argument to be made that it certainly isn't a perfect game. But when I think of that like truly fun kind of sweeping fantasy experience, to me, Runebound is really kind of the perfect uh, distillation of that. Harry, I know you've played this game. You've talked about it on some of your videos. Uh, what are your What are your feelings about Roombound? Uh, well, I absolutely love Roombound. Um, it's clear to me that you love it a lot more than I do, but <laughs> um, no, it's an amazing game. Really good. Um, I enjoy both the second and third edition of the game, and I kind of I'm kind of <laughs> the outlier in that because I do find that the 
discussion going on in certain circles is that one game is better than the other, right? Lots of people like one to the exclusion of the other. And I'm not sure if I've ever read an article or a comment or a forum where someone who's played both games uh, says they like both games, but I'm, I'm the exception to that rule. I find that they're both great. I find that they both have different strengths and weaknesses, but overall, the idea and the concept of Roombound, I would say that it's, like you said, it has flaws, but I think the idea, and going back to what I said earlier, sometimes the idea is better than the game. I think the idea is perfect. The idea of Roombound is perfect. What they are trying to capture in that box, in that gaming experience, I think is the perfect fantasy board game. Yes, sometimes when you break things down and look at the intricacies of the game, you might see areas in which they could improve and make the gameplay smoother or what have you. But it's just an amazing experience. I always have an exciting time playing either one. I must admit that Roombound 2nd Edition now is my favorite out of the two, but I Roombound 3rd Edition is by no means obsolete. I play both games on a monthly basis. So having played both games, I mean, one of the big differences is that the one game has dice and the other game has these tokens for like resolving combat. And that I think is probably one of the sticking points for people. I've never played the earlier editions, but I've looked at them. Is What do you think about the inclusion of these tokens for, for combat? It's one of the most unique things I think we've seen in, in, in an attempt to do like fantasy themed combat. To kind of give the audience, uh, if you've never played it, a sense of how this works. Basically, all the items and gear that you acquire are represented by a single POG-like token that has uh, icons on both sides. So your axe, your uh, whatever other things you pick up along the way, a magic stone or whatever. Uh, you slowly build up a handful of these things. You toss them out on your turn uh, during combat, and then the symbols that are face-up let you do different things. Make attacks, or make your opponent recast some of their tokens. Or uh, you can stack them on top of each other to make doubles. It's very tactile. It, like I said, it almost plays out like a little mini game off to the side. Uh, what are your thoughts on how that compares to traditional like dice-driven combat in the second edition? Well, going back to what I said about the ideas of games, I think the idea is amazing. I'm not such a big fan of the implementation, and maybe maybe not maybe not the implementation. The 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 tactile experience of casting those tokens just doesn't quite do it for me. But I love the idea of going to shop. And as you're going to shop, you're buying these items, and these items are represented by these tokens. That idea I really like. And, I, and, and by the way, I also love the, the involvement. The players are very involved, and even your opponents around the table or what have you, they're involved in that experience of the combat. Because you really have to be very methodical about how you use these, these tokens. So I do, I, again, that part of it I like, but it's just that tactile experience. I just can't get past it. I'm not as much of a dice person as, as you are, but for whatever reason, it's, it just doesn't click with me. I 100% agree with you, actually. The last time we played, like I, I amassed quite a handful of these and I was throwing them out. I was getting good rolls, but it does not feel satisfying to throw these out like it feels to throw dice and some of that's also like you can't you can't shake them around there's a game that i played recently called call to adventure we've talked about this in the podcast i love this game it's gorgeous it's amazing but it also has uh these runes they're essentially the same concept as the pogs here where they are two-sided but they are you know they're like small actual tiles and they actually have like texture to them so you can kind of roll them around in your hand 
they're not going to get stuck together. And when you throw them, they're such a satisfying clack. Like, if I was to change anything about, like, the combat in this one especially, it would just be make them more satisfying to throw. Because, yeah, I love that you get to power your character up and you actually get to see these things that you grab as you power your character up because it's really neat to just see the thing the tools that you have in combat you you can see that you're more powerful and you get to take these opportunities i think that's really awesome i think it's interesting that like runebound like is actually kind of like the anti-dungeon crawl because there is no There's dungeon no crawling dungeon. in that game whatsoever yeah. <laughs> you don't it, it it abstracts that completely you don't have any of that yeah. so it's it's basically like all of the uh, it's all of the overworld stuff from Gloomhaven with none of the card-based, you know, dungeon crawling, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think a neat thing that they added in the third edition as well is the inclusion of some of these cooperative mechanics mm. that feel like they probably that that feels like some of the best way to play the game as well because it is interesting. Like you have this large scale game where you're trying to defeat a dragon or whatever, but at the end of the day, it feels odd that only one person can really win when you're trying to do this together. And I mean, there's there's places for that, but I, I really, the last couple of times we've played and when we decided to include the cooperative mechanics, I really enjoyed that because it makes it kind of, it, it is cooperative. You're still doing your own thing for most of the game, but you can kind of talk and be like, okay, well, I have I have this ability. If we meet up before we fight the big baddie, then I can, I can move you here and I can give you, I can help you with this. And it kind of, it, it includes this extra level of strategy that I really enjoy in the game. To kind of elaborate on that for the audience, so in the base Roombound box, it is somewhat inexplicably, in my mind, a competitive game. You're all, uh, you can all lose together if nobody defeats the big bad at the end of the scenario, but only one person wins. It's a race. Whenever somebody feels like they're ready, you push your luck and you just, you go and you fight the dragon. And that can result in some inexplicably kind of flat in games where everyone is grinding, leveling up, having a really good time, getting cool weapons and gear. And then finally somebody's like, okay, I'm ready. And they go and kill the dragon. And then everyone's like, uh, okay. Uh, in fact, there've been many a runebound session where even after the game was over, everyone just tested out their build against the boss just to see who would win. And uh, in the traditional uh, game of runebound, uh, when you do fight, player to your left will actually run the monster for you. So that's where there is some engagement around the table that helps with like downtime. But it never felt satisfying to me that the game was competitive. It never made sense why the heroes were racing to be the one. Right at the end of the lifespan of this game, and it's gone out of print, uh, Fantasy Flight released uh, an expansion called Unbreakable Bonds, which did add both solo play for the first time and uh, cooperative. And they accomplished that by releasing these little AI boards that run the monsters for you so the other players on the table don't have to do them. And they added a lot of interesting touches, like the ability to heroes can mail items and gear to each other from across the map and all these little things. And you can form a party and do party skills together and all sorts of things. This game should have been cooperative in the box. If everything that was in this Unbreakable Bonds thing was in base Roombound, I think it'd be still a game that people talk about now. Have you had a chance to play it with that expansion, Harry? Do you have any thoughts on it? I have not. I've heard or, or have read that it has a, an artificial intelligence controlling the decisions yes. of whatever monsters you encounter. So, which I'm wondering, you know, going back to the downtime and all that stuff, how players remain immersed. But I, I, I hear you about this style of game just feeling like it should have been a cooperative game to begin with. I find like that's kind of like the game. And again, I haven't played uh, Unbreakable Bond, so... I'm not sure how that works, but it's kind of like the game pressuring players to level up as quick as possible and eventually fight the big bad, right? Don't 
indefinitely wait to go there. You know, you want to be the first person to encounter because you don't want the other person or persons to beat you to the punch. And I find that the second edition of Runebound kind of remedies that with a variant that they refer to as the Doom Track variant, where based on the amount of encounters that the players collectively uh, partake in, that kind of starts a Doom Track rising. And once the Doom Track makes it to the top, that's it. Players have to go and, and deal with the, um, the big bad. So it makes it a solo game or a solo experience straight off the, the box. Wow. While, while Roombound, without the Unbreakable Bonds expansion, you're going to have to make some house rules and tweaks in order to play it solo, which I do. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people did. It had, a, it had an interesting uh, life as a solo game even before Fantasy Flight released it. A lot of people homebrewed ways to play it solo just straight up and uh but i do think that the little uh, artificial intelligence boards that they packed in that expansion just make it cleaner it does create a little bit more of a downtime thing because we we played it cooperatively with four players and if somebody's in combat and they're kind of just doing their thing off to the side with that little like board and kind of just having a fight they're sort of in their own world for a minute and that does kind of take them out of the game. But what was great was it built up to a final moment where we all are fighting the dragon simultaneously. And because you're using these player boards to represent like you're coming at the dragon from a different angle, for the first time, instead of it feeling like uh, just tapping one person to go kill the dragon, we were all engaged in the fight and we were using party skills that play off of each mm. other. It's awesome. So it was really good. It's really one of the most satisfying things. That was one of the best parts about that, though. Like when we would jump in, talking, you know, like talking about this epic experience. Like when we fought the dragon there, I really felt like we were this party taking on the dragon because we had a couple party skills that let us actively help each other during combat. And so we get into combat, and someone say, "Oh, what do you need? Do you need help?" And I met, you know, this person jumps in with a shield to block some damage, or another person jumps in to, you know, shoot the dragon while the other person's distracting them. Like it really made it feel more engaging just to have those party skills in there, which I, I really appreciated. I do, I do love Roombound. I fully acknowledge I love Roombound probably more than the average player, in part because I just love fantasy stuff probably more than the average person. I will play a pretty bad board game as long as it's got, like, wizards and dragons and stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I, I give it probably more of a pass. There's a, one other component of the game that I do think probably holds it back in some people's eyes, and it's the way movement is resolved with these dice. I love it. I'm glad you said that. I love it too, but I can see some people getting frustrated about it. Essentially, you roll these terrain die that uh, you move as many spaces as the dice match the terrain you're trying to move onto. And what that means is that you can't necessarily reliably move as far or uh, as you want or in the direction you want on your turn. But that unpredictability is very thematic to me. Sometimes, Absolutely. The, sometimes the mountain just, you can't get over it. Sometimes the river, yeah. you can't cross it, so you got to go somewhere else. I love that sense of like the journey being difficult. Absolutely, I agree. I mean, it's it's very thematic. It's perhaps one of the most thematic aspects of the game as far as the mechanics is concerned. There's also a way to mitigate it, right? Because you do have the ability to exert skill cards and re-roll a die. And again, you could re-roll it, and it's happened to me quite often where I re-roll the same exact die, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But um, but there's a way around it. And again, it represents the limitation of travel. Like you just can't go anywhere you want in life, right? Sometimes you know, you're limited by the terrains, you know, you can't just swim across a lake all the time or, or climb a mountain. So I find that to be one of the best aspects of, of Roombound. Absolutely. I agree completely with that. I'm glad you said that too, because I think 
the reason I think it's a hindrance is some people who just, they don't want a game kind of like holding them back and telling them what they can't do. They just want to be able to do what they want on your turn. And I get that, but I do like that it is very thematic that you're limited. I was trying to kind of put together my final thoughts of like why I love this game so much. And then I think I can promise that I'll never talk about it on the show again. Uh, but the reason that I the reason that I say it's probably the best of the fantasy adventure games for me is that when I think about great fantasy books that I've read over the years and great fantasy movies, so many of them are about the journey and this sense of like a sweeping adventure happening over a long period of time and over a long distance. And this game actually brings that to life. It finally clicked in my head. Why do I love this so much? I was like, oh yeah, I feel like I'm really on a journey when I play this game. I'm having to yeah. mitigate uh, terrain and, and random events happening. And it's a real slog sometimes to get from one corner to the map in the world, but then it feels really satisfying when you get there. So that, I think, is very strong uh, for all the game's potential shortcomings, for the weirdness of the token-based combat, which I think you guys are dead on with that. It's just not as satisfying to throw those down as it probably could be. Probably would have made the game radically more expensive, though, if they were a little plastic disc, although that would have probably been way better but that's that's kind of my two cents on it if you want a game that simulates the feel of the journey that you could put on your howard shore uh lord uh, lord of the Rings soundtrack and play in the background while you're playing i think Runebounds uh is a, is worth a look but we've actually covered some really solid choices today for if you want a fantasy adventure if you're not quite into the whole idea of a dungeons and dragons type true tabletop role-playing thing if that's just not your vibe or you've never done that before you want something that's a little more contained and rule-driven these are some great choices to bring fantasy to the tabletop so those are definitely some of our favorites of the fantasy epic genre whether you're into a more crunchy dungeon crawl like gloomhaven you want something a little lighter like maybe one deck dungeon or you just want the whole experience maybe, you know, in Runebound. Definitely a lot to cover, and I hope maybe you were able to take something away from this. want to give a huge thank you once again to Harry for coming on. Definitely lended a lot of expertise and needed seriousness to this discussion. And <laughs> want to give you the chance to, uh, you know, plug what do you have going on? What have you been doing lately? All right, well, first of all, guys, I want to thank you. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to be here with you guys. You guys are Amazing at what you do. Keep it up. And thank you so much for just uh, letting me be a part of the show. So, yeah, um, just urge people to look out for When Harry Met Board Games on YouTube and on Instagram. Uh, right now, one of the recent projects I just finished uh, completing after four months of work is a People's Choice Top 100 Board Games, an alternative list. There's lots of, well, not lots, there's a few other lists out there, People's Choice type of list, the BGG rankings and things like that. And I just wanted to provide an alternative from the Instagram community. And I was able to survey over 3,100 uh, content creators from Instagram and very lucky to get them to contribute uh, with their answers as far as their favorite games are, are concerned. And I compiled a list and made a series of videos sharing the top 100. So feel free to check that out. Um, also, tomorrow, I and it's, it's actually kind of in harmony with the discussion for today, I'm actually putting up a... Top five board games from within the Terranoff universe. We're talking about Roombound, the flagship product of Terranoff. And I figured it was just good timing to drop that video. So if you guys are curious about hearing more about Roombound or other games within the Terranoff universe, games that uh, were inspired by Roombound and fall within the same fantastical setting, I'll be dropping that video tomorrow. And finally, I have a board game giveaway uh, running on Instagram and on YouTube in celebration of my first 
120,000 views on the channel. Basically, there are three games up for grabs. This is a worldwide giveaway, so no matter where you live in the world, you are eligible for this giveaway. And basically, we have a copy of Steffenfeld and Michael Renek's Merlin. We also have a game called Get Rich Quick. And we have Port Royal by Alexander Pfister. And these games are all available. So check out uh, my YouTube channel or my Instagram page for details as to how you can enter this giveaway. Definitely go check Harry out. He has some amazing stuff and the giveaway does sound amazing as well. Thank you once again. Amazing to have you on. Please go check his stuff out. Subscribe to his YouTube channel. You're going to enjoy his content a lot. Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? You can find us on the Instagram at Dice Pirates is the best way to find us. We are there uh, all week. We do more than podcasts. We post mini reviews. We give updates on what we're playing. We post silly nonsense to the Instagram story. And if you follow us there, please uh, comment, send us a message. We'll talk back to you. We'll even be nice. We are excited. Next episode, we're going to go ahead and bring you a breakdown of Kickstarter. What has it done for board games? How has it changed the industry? And is it all for the better? We're excited to really break down, get into that topic and bring that to you. And definitely join us for that next time here on the Dice Pirates. Dice Pirates.